Almighty God, you are perfect, holy, good, and the all-permitting God. You are God and you alone can do what you please. We confess our constant wandering in spiritual information and data. We're familiar with so much of our Bibles. We have much Bible knowledge, and yet we seldom go on to maturity by continually trusting in Christ. Lord, grant your spirit to come this morning to convict us of our sin of dead works. We are far more interested in what we can do for you instead of what you have done for us in Christ. Lord, convict us of this sin this morning. Produce faith and repentance in us. Wash us clean and grant us confidence in your kingdom to come through Jesus Christ. We ask these things in his precious and perfect name, Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen. I don't know about you, but um, I find myself when I'm when I, I seldom have the opportunity to to sit where you are instead of stand where I am. I find myself praying in the midst of the sermon, and uh, if you do that often, uh, that's a good thing, I think. And uh, I would appreciate your prayers this morning. I uh, I'm I'm feeling weak. Uh, in the in the things of the Lord, and, and I ask that the Spirit would come and accomplish what I can't. And I pray that the Lord will do in my weakness far more than I can do in my strength. And so let's ask that the Lord will do that this morning as we consider this together. Well, in the Waters house, uh, each one of my children have a bedroom, and in their bedroom is a closet. And in that closet are markings on the wall. And uh, it's a precious thing. We'll have to take that with us if we ever move from that house. We're not planning on it. But if we do, it will be the, uh, the, 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 the closet molding will come with us. And because uh, we have markings on that wall, it's probably uh, actually they're far more uh, stark for Evan because he was actually an infant in that home. And so we started marking him off real early, real low to the ground, you know. And, uh, and as they've grown, and it's, it's absolutely phenomenal to look down at those lower marks with that with those dates on it, right? And you think, wow, that was just five years ago, right? Where did it go? How, how in the world did this happen? Their growth is evident by the markings on the wall. It's, it's hard for us to see, my wife and I, because we see them every day. And so they go to bed and they get up and, you know, they grow and we see it gradually. But many of you may see it differently because you see them less frequently. And so you see them growing in, in amazing ways. And uh, I have no idea how it happens. I mean, the only thing I can contribute it to is chicken fingers and French fries because that's basically all they eat. And, uh, and, I, and I'm amazed. I'm amazed that the Lord has, has, has brought us this far. I'm amazed that I have a teenager. I'm amazed that, that the Lord has allowed them to grow and mature in amazing ways. It's something that I didn't do, however. And I think they would dare say and you would say, it's not something that you do either, is it? You go to bed and you get up, you eat, you go about your day, and all in the midst of that, God is working and orchestrating, and your, your bones are growing, your, your body is maturing, and you're, you're growing. 
And it's an amazing thing. It is an amazing thing. That issue of maturity is exactly what this pastor was concerned about with this congregation. In fact, for the last several weeks, if you notice in your worship journal on page 3, we're going to be dealing with the issue of maturity and also immaturity. Notice there, last week we looked at the essence of immaturity. That was in chapter 5, verses 11 through 14. This morning, we're going to be looking at the answer to immaturity, and that is going on into maturity. And so we'll be looking at that this morning. Next Lord's Day, the, the danger of immaturity. We'll be looking at verses 4 through 8, and then the perseverance immaturity, verses 9 through 16. And then we'll, final it, we'll finalize chapter 6 out with the hope of maturity. And we'll be looking at this understanding. How do we grow? How do we mature? Not just physically, though that may be a mystery to us, but spiritually probably is just far more a mystery to us. How is it that the Lord brings us along? You see, it's it's easy for me to mark the side of the closet door, isn't it? It's hard to do that spiritually, isn't it? Where are the markings on the wall that helps us see that we've gone somewhere? Some of us may even think, you know, there's no markings on the wall, but if there were, it may be going up and down all along the way. There's not a there's not a up always, but there's a there's a moving up and down. There's this wave coming and going. There's this difficulty. How do we measure our maturity? How do we begin working toward maturity? Well, as we see here in our passage this morning, that this this pastor has rebuked his congregation. He's con- he's concerned about them because they are, according to verse eleven, dull of hearing. He goes on and says, you're in need of milk. He's using this imagery of an infant. He says, you're still drinking milk, and there's been time enough for you to have more than just milk but solid food. You're in need of teachers, and you should be teaching by now. But the pastor in his love and care for his congregation, this Hebrew congregation this pastor is preaching to, and that's what this is, is a message, a sermon to his congregation. He doesn't leave them there. He doesn't just rebuke them and then move on. But instead, he says in verse 1 of chapter 6, Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity. He's not willing to allow his congregation to reside in their immaturity. He's not wanting them to stay there, but he, he, he issues this rebuke, and then he says, now, now let's move on. Let's go into this maturity that God has called us into. And that's what we're going to be dealing with this morning. I want us to notice this, uh, this idea of maturity and growing in maturity in three particular aspects. These are the three points for the sermon this morning. If you want to write these down, they may be helpful for you. Point number one is the charge for maturity. The charge for maturity. That's at the beginning of verse 1. Point number 2, the steps toward maturity. This is the latter part of verse 1 into verse 2. And then point number 3 is the source of maturity. The source of maturity. If you had asked me when my children were born, how are you going to get them grown. How, how are you going to make that happen? Um, I still cannot believe, I mean, it's, it's amazing to me they don't give you some kind of booklet or something. Put something in your hand other than the baby when they send you home. They really need to give you something to say, what, what do you do? Especially for that first one, because you have no idea what's going on. In our spiritual life, so often, I believe, in, specifically in churches that you and I may have grown up in, I know I grew up in, the emphasis was so heavy on soul winning on making converts, on winning the world to Jesus. 
maturity became not sometimes secondary at best, but sometimes altogether rejected, altogether turned away from. Once we got you um, converted, then you were left to do whatever you need to do. You kind of figure it out as you go. Scripture doesn't show us that. In fact, this pastor says that it's not enough for you to simply be converted. It is of absolute necessity to begin maturing in your faith. So this morning I want us to notice this charge, point number one, the charge of this maturity, the charge for maturity. First here in verse 1 of chapter 6, it says, Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again the foundation of repentance. Now, the main command here, the main charge here, could be lost in the, in, in the midst of this verse. The main charge here is that phrase in the middle of the verse saying, Go on to maturity. Go on to maturity. That's the main verb of that, actual, that sentence. And what's interesting is that we don't really get the gist of this. It's actually, and I want to speak to this a little later, but I want to mention it now. That understanding is not, now you need to, you need to work on this and you need to go on to maturity. Try to do this on your own. The idea here is actually, this verb is in the passive. This is a little English lesson here. Meaning that you need to, according to this, maybe better translated, you need to be carried on to maturity. You need to be brought along to maturity. It's not that the, the, the pastor here is saying, you need to get with it and get with the program and start becoming mature. That's as foolish as me saying to one of you, listen, you need to, you need to grow some physically. You, tomorrow, tonight when you go to bed, I want you to grow at least an inch. Do that for me. It's foolishness. In this passage, this pastor is saying, you know what, you're going to be brought along to maturity. And I want, you, I want to charge you to be brought along to this maturity. The new... Uh, new international version of 2011 has tried to um, has tried to actually get at this sense here. Let me read the, the the translation of this verse. Therefore, let us move beyond the elementary teachings about Christ. Now, listen to this, and be taken forward to maturity. You see how they're trying to get that sense of the idea that this is not something that we do, but it's something that's being done to us. That we're being carried along, or according to this, taken forward into maturity. And this is very very important. Because here's the issue. How do we move into this? How do we receive this? How do we, how do we begin growing in this maturity? Well, we see it in the, in the, um, in the, verse bef- or the, the line before and the line after this, this charge to go on to maturity. The line before it says we need to leave the elementary doctrine of Christ. Now, that just does not sound right, does it? There's just nothing about that that sounds correct. That's got to be a misprint. The understanding here is this, is that this pastor is not encouraging his congregation to move beyond the gospel. Not at all. But instead, he's asking his congregation, he's charging his congregation, he says, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ. Another way of translating it is this, let us leave standing those elementary principles of the doctrine of Christ. Let us leave those standing, but not stay there. You see, it is necessary for those principles to be there, but it's not sufficient to be only in those principles. Here's the point. The point is that the pastor was not asking them to move beyond the gospel. He was asking them to move into the gospel, to go deeper into the gospel, to move further into acknowledging the gospel. The problem with this congregation was this. They knew that Jesus Christ had lived. They were actually very close to that time period, right? Just a few decades ago, Jesus had lived for these people. Jesus Christ, that man, had lived. He was born of a virgin. He lived a perfect life. He taught wonderful things morally. He taught a lot of moral, good teachings. He died on a cross. They knew that data. 
They knew that information. But that was where they chose to stay with it. The fact that they knew about Jesus Christ was what they were counting on being sufficient for their salvation. Friends, that's exactly where many of us are today, aren't we? We live in Jacksonville, Florida. It's hard for us to bump into somebody who knows nothing about the data or information about Jesus. In fact, many would declare that because they understand the very, uh, the very pieces of information concerning who Jesus is, and can even point them out if you walk by them in a, in a picture on a wall somewhere, then that's sufficient for my knowledge of Christianity. This pastor is saying, no, instead, let us leave this elementary doctrine or teaching of Christ, just the bare essentials, the very data of who he is. Let us leave this, and it says, go on to maturity. And then we got the second line right after the go on to maturity. How are we going to go on to maturity? First, we're going to leave these elementary doctrines or the mere data of who Jesus is. But secondly... How are we going to go forward? We're going to go forward by, in maturity, be carried along into maturity by not laying again a foundation of repentance. Not laying again a foundation of repentance. Now here, the issue is not that the foundation is a bad thing. Foundation is an excellent thing. In fact, it's absolutely crucial, isn't it? Foundation is necessary for anything to be built on. But how many of you have seen, and I have, as I have, um, driven by places, especially recently in the last um, maybe five or six years since the the, the difficulties financially with our uh, economy, and you see a slab out there, maybe even some poles up, but that's it. Was that their intent, to lay the slab and leave it like that? Was that their desire? Was that the purpose of that building, is to simply be a slab laying out there in the middle of or beside the road or out in the middle of nowhere? That was not the purpose. The foundation was meant to be built on. And this pastor is concerned that they've laid the foundation. In other words, they know the information and the data of who Jesus is. They understand those things about him, even some of his moral teachings. Maybe they could even tell you, uh, quote some some lines or some verses, or even be able to communicate to you that that he taught things like on the Sermon on the Mount, that he healed people, that he helped people, that he loved people. They were able to give information about who Jesus is, even have a conversation about him. But they were not building on that foundation. See, this foundation that they had, however, here in verse 1, this foundation that they had was a foundation that was made for them in their Old Testament. We need to remember that these, these people that, that this pastor is speaking to here are Hebrews, meaning that they are Jews, meaning that they have been walking in a faith called Judaism for many, many years, many of them for all of their life, and they have recently been converted to Jesus Christ. And so when they look at this, their foundation is a foundation of what the Old Testament has established for them. And you see, the Old Testament is our foundation as well. The Old Testament lays the groundwork for us. It helps us see that those rituals and those customs and those sacrifices, all of those make sense in light of who Christ is. In fact, when we become more and more familiar with our Old Testament, we become more and more... um, Sharp in our understanding of why Jesus had to die on the cross and shed his blood. So many of us have gone straight to the New Testament, have been taught nothing but out of the New Testament, and we have no foundation laid under us. We have no reason of why is it that our God is desiring blood. They don't understand that. Many don't. We have to back up and lay a foundation that these Jews who are now Christians had. It requires the shedding of blood. 
for the remission of sin, doesn't it? That's what God says in his word. But here's the problem. They were wanting the data about who Jesus was. They were like, yes, we believe in Jesus. We know he taught some wonderful things. We know he died on the cross. We will accept that. But we also want to keep our rituals and our sacrifices and our customs. Can't we do both? Can't we do both? Can't we have both of these? And this pastor is saying, we do not need to lay that foundation again. You are, you're, if you're wanting to do those sacrifices and those rituals and those other things, you are cutting, you're cutting the very heart out of the very message of Christ that he is supposed to be. You, you understand the data of who he is, but you don't understand what he did by who he was. And so the Old Testament was laying that groundwork. And so let's notice what this foundation consists of. Look at with me in verse 1. This foundation consists of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God. Verse 2. And of instruction about washings, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. Now, wouldn't you say that these six items sound very Christian to you? They sure do. In fact, our Christian ears are hearing a lot of things in these terms that these Jewish young believers were not hearing (laughs) because we've been so soaked in the New Testament and in Christ that we're hearing a lot of stuff that they didn't hear. Try to, if you will, pull yourself out of your your New Testament understanding of hearing this. And I want you to hear this. And I think it will be helpful for us to understand their immaturity if we can do this. Let's hear this through Old Testament ears, if you will. These Old Testament Christians, these ones who have been been very uh, immersed in in the sacrifices and the rituals and the customs of the Old Testament prior to Christ. You see, every one of these things are things that Judaism affirmed. Judaism was the Jewish faith prior to Christ's coming. Every one of these Judaism affirmed and dealt with and handled. And they were understanding each one of these terms in that way and wanting to understand them in the Old Testament way. And this pastor is saying we should not lay that foundation of the Old Testament now. We need to move on. We need to move on to maturity. And so this morning I want us to notice these six terms these six phrases here in verses 1 and 2, and I want us to hear them and I want you to see them uh, through Old Testament eyes and ears, if you will. Now, these six terms, I'm going to pair them up just for ease of, under, of listening, of hearing it from, for, in way of a sermon. I'm going to pair these up into three groups, three categories. So six terms, I'm going to pair them up into three categories, and I want us to see two, two at a time, all right? The first set of terms, that is, the foundation of their faith, foundation of this, that they've been laid through their Old Testament, is, um, is, is, a, is, is categorized as our standing before God, or it's related to our standing before God. Our standing before God. Do you see this in verse 1? It says, not laying again a foundation of, here it is, of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God. These two things are in relationship to our standing before God. It is, in fact, the beginning or the start of the process of maturity. Now, I just actually, let me, let me I apologize because you guys are looking at me like, I, I don't know where you're at. This is the second point of our outline. 
And, and that helps everybody. I apologize. I moved right through and kept going. This is the second point of our outline. These are the steps to, toward maturity. The steps toward maturity. I apologize. The outline's supposed to help, not hinder. So uh, there we go. The steps toward maturity. The first step is our standing before God. Our standing before God. And this is the start of maturity. And it is in the verses or in these phrases, the first two phrases, repentance of dead works and faith toward God. Now, in the Old Testament, like in the New Testament, both faith and repentance always went together. You can't find faith without repentance or repentance without faith. There are people who say, well, you know, I'm trusting in God about this. And, and you know, I, I just feel like I need to be um, dating this young man or this young lady. You know, they're not, they're not believers, but, you know, I'm just going to trust the Lord in this. You're not trusting the Lord if you don't realize that what Scripture says is that you're not supposed to be dating someone who's not a believer. So if there's not repentance, then there's not faith. You can call it what you want. Do you understand that so many want to say, I'm trusting the Lord in this, and yet there's no repentance around that faith, and so there's no faith at all. Faith and repentance are two sides of the same coin. And that's how it was in the Old Testament. That's how it is today. That's how it is today among, our, among the Christian church today in the New Testament. Not only is this uh, supposed to be seen together both in the Old Testament and New Testament, but also we see that this was something that consistently happened. I I said that this faith and repentance, this repentance from dead works and faith toward God, that this was the beginning of the process, and that's true. Faith and repentance is the beginning of the process of, of our standing before God. But it is a continual thing. Continual thing. How many of you guys grew up in, in churches where they, um, you, you, you would rededicate your life to Jesus? Right? I never understood that. I remember growing up and going to college and you know, rededicate my life to Jesus. My dedication to Jesus the last time is a problem I, I'm facing right now. The reason I'm where I'm at is because I'm, I'm trying to, I'm try, I, I dedicated to him back two months ago and I messed it up again. Why would I rededicate and just blow it again another two months? The biblical phrase for that is called repentance. <laughs> the thing we're supposed to be doing isn't rededicating our life. It's supposed to be, we're supposed to be repentance. Now, where does repentance come from? It's a kindness of God. You see here it says that this foundation that they were laying was a, uh, a first of repentance from dead works. Repentance from dead works. This was a problem in the Old Testament. When they went to repent and trust in God, in other words, repent from dead works and trust or have faith toward God, you know what they did? They did sacrifices. Now, this is very foreign to us, and we'd have to read our Old Testament to find out more about this, and I would encourage you to do that. But specifically, what they would do is they would bring, a family, for example, would bring a goat to the priest. And the priest would use that goat, take that goat, and lay his hands on the goat and, and place the guilt of their sin upon this goat, and then he would, he would sacrifice this goat. And the reason they would do that is because of Leviticus 17, verse 11. It says, For it is the blood of... It is the blood of the goat that makes atonement by the life. Leviticus 11. And so they were trusting in what the Lord said, that it requires blood in order for sin to be, to be removed, for sin to be, to be taken care of. Here's the problem, however. When they brought their animals that they had, that they raised, that they brought to them, these, these God-fearing people of the Old Testament started taking their sin lightly. You know how we know that? Because they started bringing their blind goats and animals or their lame goats. They started bringing the ones that they were going to kill anyway or that were going to die anyway. Oh, that one just hurt himself, fell in a hole. Let's bring him out and let's bring him for the sacrifice. Because all the others are healthy, they can take care of themselves. Let's bring this lame, maimed animal and use that for a sacrifice. What was that doing? 
That was belittling their sin. That was dishonoring to God. Their sacrifice wasn't really a sacrifice at all, was it? They were going to get rid of that animal anyway. That animal needed to be taken care of. And yet they brought it for sacrifice so that they could be taken care of. They were taking their sin lightly. And in so doing, their sacrifice, according to God's word in the Old Testament, was worthless. In other words, here it is, that sacrifice was a dead work. You went through all the, you went through all the works, right? You, you brought your animal. You brought it and bring it to the priest. The priest did all the things he was supposed to do with it. But at the end of the day, all of that effort was a dead work. Why? Because your heart wasn't there. Your desire, what you, you did not understand the sinfulness of sin. You were, you were half-hearted in your bringing of that sacrifice. This is a dead work. And in the Old Testament, what it says is the reason you're bringing these, these maim and lame sacrifices is because your heart isn't truly repentant. And you're truly not coming to the Lord in faith. In other words, they were, they were, according to this, the foundation that was being laid of repentance from dead works and faith toward God. They were not doing that. They were rejecting that by bringing half-hearted sacrifices. So their repentance and their faith was not genuine in this Old Testament scheme of doing things. But what do we do? Well, let's just keep going through the motions and hope that it works out. Right? That's, that was pretty much what we see in the Old Testament. They continue to do. The, the prophets were saying, don't come half-hearted. God doesn't require a sacrifice of a half-hearted person. And yet, they continue to do what they needed to do. Because, you know, maybe if we just keep being, putting forth a lot of effort, and we really mean it this time, then maybe God will maybe um, do something. Second step. The second step is the next two phrases. In our maturity. The second step is in verse 2. And of instruction about washings, the laying and the on the laying on of hands. Alright? This concerns the cleansing before God. Our cleansing before God. The last one was our standing before God. This one's our cleansing before God. This is the next two phrases, and it is specifically in relation to their continual. They're continuing in the faith as God's people of the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, this was of utmost importance. In fact, if you read the book of Leviticus, you realize that anything that they touched as God's people, anything they eat, they ate, some of the things that they wore. If you wore clothing or material that had more than one type of fabric in it, mixed material, then you were unclean. How many of us are unclean this morning according to that Levitical standard? You see, you see how that works? So they were constantly having to cleanse themselves from all of these different things that would make them unclean because they could not approach a holy and pure God by being unclean. What they touched, what they ate, what they wore made them unclean. So it says here in verse 2, there were instructions about washings. They were constantly washing themselves. And it required all kinds of different washings, depending on how you became unclean. Many of you know that um, an Orthodox Jew, even today, when they wash their hands, they wash their hands. They wash one hand first, but, and then, then that hand now is clean to wash this hand, and then they wash that hand. And then they wash all the way up to their elbows, and there has to be so many drops of water that come off their elbows in order for that, those two hands to be clean. An amazing ritualistic understanding of cleansing. These are all instructions of the washing given to them by the Old Testament. And these 
these, uh, these Jewish people were very concerned about being clean, but specifically about being clean concerning sin. See, the main stain for them was sin. We find this in a very familiar passage that we've read many a times in Psalm 52. It says, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. Remember Psalm 52, uh, 51, 2? Psalm 51, 7 says, purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Psalm 51, 10, create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. You hear that? That heart of desire to be clean, and specifically not just externally, but a clean heart, creating me a clean heart, O oh God. Well, it's one thing for us to wash well, but it's another thing and a very serious thing that if we cannot approach God with a, with a stained heart, how do I get my heart clean? That was the question that these Jews in the Old Testament had. And one of the ways they did it was by this phrase that we see next, not only the instructions and washings, but also the laying on of hands. This understanding of laying on of hands um, came when they would actually, uh, the family would bring again another animal. And in this particular case, the animal would come to the priest. The priest would lay his hands on this animal. He would dispense or give all the guilt from the sin from that family onto this animal. And then after he placed all the guilt of the sin onto this animal, he would take that animal and run him out of the city into the wilderness. And that animal was cut off. He was thrown outside of the camp. He was most surely going to be not only exposed but unprotected and most surely going to be uh, killed. But in this way, they were saying the guilt of our sin has been placed on this animal and now this animal has been cast out and away from us. And in so doing, by laying his hands on this priest, laying his hands on this goat and casting it out, he was doing this to get rid of the guilt of their sin. An Old Testament practice. So not only was this the instructions of washings in the Old Testament, but the laying on of hands in the Old Testament where this guilt was transferred over to this goat or this animal and then cast outside of the city. You see, these are the things that were happening. Not only they're standing before God, the first two things, repentance from dead works and faith toward God. Not only was there cleansing before God, the instructions about washings and laying on of hands. Not only were these steps of maturity for them, but these were rituals that they could do. They could put their hands on something. They could take something to the priest. They can be placing effort and energy. They can externally show people, look, I'm giving this animal over. I'm doing these things so that God can be pleased with me. We find this, this, this act of laying on of hands in Leviticus chapter 16, if you'd like to read it. I, I've got it here, but I'm not going to read it for sake of time. Leviticus chapter 16 speaks of this, this ritual of laying hands upon the animal and then casting them out into the wilderness. And it says, actually I'll read the last verse of this, The goat shall bear all their iniquities on itself and to, to a remote area. And it speaks of the fact that, that goat going to a remote area and bearing the sins of those people upon themselves. But was that the point? Was that the end? Was that what God intended by all of these so that we can have all of these situations and circumstances? I'm not sure if that's exactly what God intended ultimately. The final step is step number three. Step number three, our hope before God. It's the last two phrases. Our hope before God. Our hope before God. Our standing before God. Our cleansing before God. And then our third step toward maturity is our hope before God. And in, as this is in the last two phrases here, the resurrection from, of the dead and eternal judgment. 
This is the end or the goal of our maturity. The resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. One day, we will stand before a holy God and we will have to be clean. We will have to be without sin. On that day when we will be raised from the dead, all of us will be raised and we'll stand before the judgment seat of God and we're going to have to ask, answer the question, have, do, am I sinless, am I pure, am I holy before a God who is holy and pure? That's our hope. That's our anticipation. Many don't think of this idea of resurrection as being in the Old Testament. In fact, we think of resurrection as primarily being a New Testament thing, don't we? We don't think about resurrection being in the Old Testament hardly at all. Let me give you a couple of verses just, to, just in way of reference that you can go back and look at, and then I want to read a text for you. The first verse I want you to reference concerning the resurrection in the Old Testament is Isaiah chapter 25, verse 28. He will swallow up death forever. I'm not going to read the whole verse, but that's the beginning of it. Isaiah 25, 8, he will swallow up death forever. Daniel 12, 2. Daniel 12, 2. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake. Daniel 12, 2. Speaking of the resurrection, specifically from the Old Testament. But this morning, as Dale read for us in Ezekiel chapter 37, one of the most uh, clear pronouncements of the resurrection in all of the Old Testament, Ezekiel 37, where the dry bones were laying all over the valley. And the Lord says, Then he said to me, Son of man, these bones... This is Ezekiel 37, verses 11 through 14. Son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. Behold, they say, Our bones are dried up and our hope is lost. We are indeed cut off. Therefore prophesy and say to them, Thus says the Lord God... Listen to this. Behold, I will open your graves... And raise you from your graves, O my people, and I will bring you into the land of Israel. And you shall know that I am the Lord when I open your graves and raise you from your graves, O my people. On that day, friends, when the Lord opens those graves and he raises his people from them, all will know that he is the Lord. Every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that he is the Lord. That is Old Testament. We don't think of resurrection in the Old Testament, do we? That is Old Testament. There will be a day, according to our passage here in verse 2, it says, um, this is our hope, the resurrection of the dead, and it says eternal judgment. This day is not going to be a glorious, anticipated, wanted day for many. It says in Scripture that there are those who will not be placing their faith in Christ. There will be those who are not repentant. There will be those who are not clean. There will be those who are not washed. There will be those who have not laid the guilt of their sin upon another. These will be ones who on that judgment day, that will not be a good day. That will not be a day of joy, but a day of despair. Now, you've bore with me through all of this Old Testament explanation. Six terms, three phrases, or three categories of a standing before God, a cleansing before God, and then finally our hope before God. Let me draw a a few conclusions here quickly. The problem with these Hebrew Christians was that they were wanting to continue in those rituals and sacrifices and things, and they said, and we know that Jesus came, and that he taught a bunch of wonderful things. 
and that he did a bunch of wonderful things and that he loved people and that he did moral things and wants to encourage people to do moral things. He healed people. He did great stuff. I want to, I want to accept and affirm that Jesus did those things and I want to continue to do my rituals and my sacrifices and my stuff. That way both bases are covered and I'm good before God. And then Christ came. You see, Christ, Christ is the one who delivers us from all dead works. See, any sacrifice at this point, any sacrifice of any kind, any butchering of an animal is denying that Christ shed his blood. And it is a dead work at that point. Any attempt to do that sacrifice is a dead work. Why? Because they're half-hearted. They're just as half-hearted as the Old Testament people were when they brought their sacrifices with no regard for who God was, no faith in Him. They're coming and they're saying, we want to bring our sacrifices. It's half-hearted. It is only in Christ that we can find true good works. It's only in Christ that we can have faith toward God who has promised His fathers that He will will bring us in. How was Abraham made righteous? By faith. How are we made righteous? By faith in a God who promises His Son to us. And so in Christ, we have have all of these sacrifices and washings and rituals fulfilled, is what it says in Scripture. Completed, confirmed, and, and there's no need to continue in these things. In Christ, we've been washed, friends. We've been, as the old hymn says, washed in the blood. In Christ, we have a sin bearer that has been cast outside of the city, that was taken outside of the city and hung there on the cross and shed his blood as the one who bore our sins in our stead for us, those who place their faith in Christ. Why do you, continue, why do you want to continue to do that? To, to, to place your hands on those goats and send them out of the city. Christ has completed that. Christ said, I am the resurrection and the life. I am the resurrection and the life. How do we get to God? All of those who want to get to God have to come through Him. He is the way, the truth, and the life. Only in Christ is the resurrection fulfilled. And friends, when we stand before God one day, on that day of eternal judgment, there will be millions, thousands and millions Myriads and myriads who will be confessing their own righteousness before God. Didn't we prophesy in your name? Didn't we do all these good things? Didn't we go to church and go to Sunday school and read our Bible and pray and memorize and do this and share? And Weren't we good people? And the only answer God in His holiness is asking is, are you in Christ? Have you, have you received the righteousness of who Christ is? You see, it's not your righteousness, but His that God's going to be looking for on that final day. So in Christ, we have all of these things taken care of. Now, you may think to yourself, how foolish this is for these Hebrews to be doing such a thing. Let me start out broad and bring it close in. Broadly speaking, we find that historically this is the very way that we as people in humanity are hardwired. Historically, what we found is that the Protestant Reformation took place. And the reason we have Protestants today as congregations of different Protestant congregations 
is because the Roman Catholic Church during that time and today insists that if you're going to stand before God righteous, you have to be baptized and take of communion and all of the other sacraments. And in so doing, you will be saved. You're standing before God. How do you get cleansed within the Roman Catholic Church? Well, you go to confessional. And you confess your sins and you go regularly to cleanse yourself in the, in the midst of this priest that you come to them. It's not a far fetch, friends, from bringing your goat. Right. How do you stand before a holy God in judgment day? The Roman Catholic Church has created a, an arbitrary doctrine called purgatory that has allowed us to be freed, according to them, of that. Now, you think, how dare they? You know, we, the great enemy is the Roman Catholic Church. Now, I don't mean to speak of it that way, but I will say this. They are doing what our hearts are wanting. I want you to see that the Roman Catholic Church as a system and in history has been willing to say, let's, let's, let's do something different. Let's make uh, standing before God and cleansing before God and our hope before God. Let's make all of those things based on things that we do. That's what the Roman Catholic Church does. Have you ever... Have you ever desired or sought after just a simple acknowledgement of who Christ is as the basis for, for your salvation? Not willing to go any further than that? Have you ever said, well, I know who Jesus is. He's that guy in that picture. I went to Sunday school. I know all the stories. And you were satisfied with that. Have you ever tried to establish your right standing before God on the basis of your own sacrifices of church attendance and Bible reading? Scripture memory. You know, I'm really faithful. I go to church every Sunday. I'm really faithful. You know, I talk about Jesus at work. That's your arbitrary sacrifices. That's your doing and your abilities. Your, 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 that, that's what you're doing to say, I'm standing before God, and the way I'm standing before God is because of all these wonderful things that I do. Have you and I ever attempted to be clean before God out of our own efforts, out of our own trying harder, out of our own abilities and skills, maybe the skill to hide our sin from everyone else, or maybe even to compare ourselves with everybody else that's, you know, they're, they're, they're horrible people, and I'm better than they are. I mean, God's got to accept me. I mean, look at all these other people. Have we ever done that? You're seeking to establish your own cleansing before God. Have you ever lost hope and anticipation for the final day of God? Have you ever found yourself more joyous and, 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 and excited about and content in the things of this world and the blessings that it gives instead of the things of heaven and the things that God promises? Whatever you place your hope in, this morning I got up early because of the baptism and I was going to the office and getting some things done. Um, I live on uh, McCormick or Wonderwood, right? You would not believe the number of very large boats going toward the water this morning. I pray that they were honoring God in, in so doing. They were going down there to meet their church, I'm sure. But we place our hope and our anticipation, our joy and our love in our things and our stuff and our children and our marriage in our jobs. 
See, friends, we're no better than the Roman Catholic Church. We want to beat them up. The only reason I wanted to use that is that I wanted you to see that this is not a slight problem that occasionally happens. This is a problem throughout history of the church. And in your own heart, you are desperately trying to find some other way to stand before God, some other way to be cleansed, some other thing to hope in that will give you joy and peace. It's our own heart. And friends, we're no different than this Hebrew congregation. We're no different. So how do we go on to maturity? How can we go on to maturity? I mean, you've already heard that Jesus Christ came, lived a sinless life. And that in Christ, in trusting in Christ, we can have our standing before God. He is our righteousness. In Christ, as we trust in Christ, He's the one who will cleanse us from all of our iniquities. In Christ, in His sacrifice, will be the one who bears our iniquities, who took the wrath upon Himself on the cross. And in Christ, we can hope. In His heaven and kingdom to come is what we can anticipate. You've heard all of that. And you and I both are saying, okay, I've got that, now what do I do? Okay, I understand that, but what do I do? How do I how do I become mature? How do I grow? How do I continue like I need to? This passage says, go on to maturity. Well, let me encourage you to leave the elementary doctrine of Christ. Stop settling for simply having data about who Jesus is. But but go not beyond, but go into the gospel more and more. Let me encourage you, if you want to go on to maturity, stop laying the foundation of repentance from dead works and faith toward God and instruction about washings and laying on the hands and resurrection of the dead, the eternal judgment. Stop trying to find your own standing before God, your own cleansing before God, your own hope before God. Stop laying that foundation thinking, thinking you can do that. What am I to do? Do you see verse 3? It should, it should jolt us. How are we going to become mature? How are we going to go on to maturity? And this, this maturity, verse 3, this is point 3, by the way. I just moved into it. And this we will do if God permits. If God ordains. If God desires. You see, friends, we can do all these different things thinking it brings maturity. And the only one you're mature in front of are those who are around you who think you're mature because you're so busy. How do we become mature? We will become mature if God permits. Now that will cause us and some to try to fall into the ditch on one side. And that ditch on one side is, well, if it's God that does it, then I don't need to do anything. I need to be just completely just kind of sitting back waiting for him to hit me with it. Well, Scripture doesn't speak that way. We have commands in Scripture. But I believe our propensity this morning is the same as the people here in the book of Hebrews, and that is that we're far too apt to say, okay, okay, I've got the gospel, I understand it, now what do I do? Give me tasks to do. Give me something to perform so that I can look, so I can do something. Give me an animal to bring. Let me go to a confessional. This will only happen if God initiates it. And you know what that should drive you to do? Not to passivity, 
but to fall before your holy God and say, Dear God, please, would you grant me to move beyond my own desire to stand before you, my own desire to cleanse myself, my own desire to have hopes in this world, and allow me, Lord, give me the heart that longs for Jesus Christ and Him crucified. When God does that, and only God can, will we be mature. This maturity is going to happen only if the Lord does it. And you think, wow, that's, that's very different from how I grew up understanding things. I mean, I grew up, and you did too some, with every Sunday you leave church with a list of things that if you can get those down, like the ones you had last week, if I can do more things, my pastor gave me another list of things I can do to be a better Christian. And I'm going to leave with that list of things to do. You know, this morning, I'm not going to give you a list of things to do. You, you've, you've got that list and you've made it yourself. I would say throw away the list. Here's what we do if we're going to go on to maturity. Trust in Christ and beg for his mercy that we may be permitted to press into the things of Christ. You think that's so foreign to me. Well, you, you sing about it and don't blink an eye. I mean, this is historically, this is exactly what we've always understood. It's just recently in many churches today, we've placed man at the center of our salvation and not God. But we sing about this historically. We sing just songs that, just should, that should declare, and this we will do if God permits. We sing songs like this. Not what my hands have done can save my guilty soul. Not what my toiling flesh has borne can make my spirit whole. Not what I feel or do can give me peace with God. Not all my prayers or sighs or tears can bear this awful load. Not what my hands have done, but only through the Son. We sang that this morning. And you didn't bat an eye. You said, yes, that's, what, that's it. That's it. All you were saying in that song was, if God permits, I can, be, I can continue. We're getting ready to sing this one, so I want to read the lyrics. Oh, to grace, how great a debtor. Daily I'm constrained to be. Let the grace now like a fetter bind my wandering heart to thee. Are you doing that? Not at all. You're begging to God, let your grace like a fetter bind my heart to thee, prone to wander. That's your part. That's what we do. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart. Oh, take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. And this we will do if God permits. Let us pray.